this is a very critical part of our church family, and I'd encourage you to be a part of it, maybe in one sentence, uh, in all seriousness, why is this such a vital ministry? Why children's ministry? Wow. Um, so here's what I would say to you guys. I don't know if you're paying attention to the world going on outside our doors right now. And if we don't train them in the way that they should go, the world is trying as hard as it can to train them in the way it wants them to go. Right. And so we're trying to give them a, a biblical foundation of a group of people that believe commonly, not just their moms and dads who say the same thing, but hearing other adults and other grown-ups going, hey, we love the Lord too, and we've devoted our life to him, and so can you. Right. And when they do that, man, we just know that the benefits of them choosing Christ at an early age is like tremendous because they're going to avoid a lot of the junk that I did and most of us have done going through life. And we know statistically... Once they leave these doors as an adult, if they haven't accepted Christ, the chances are, are a lot smaller. Right. So if you love Jesus and you want to help others love Jesus and you can pass a background check, children's ministry is for you because they can serve on a like a monthly basis where they're rotating so they're not out there all the time oh absolutely yeah. not in fact we, yeah. we strive very hard for people not to serve more than once right. a month a few of us do occasionally but right. by and large we would love people to be able to serve once a month and then be in service the rest of the week because just like everybody we need to be growing right. as well all right thanks howard thank you i i cannot encourage you strong strongly enough to consider being a part of children's ministry it's a important part of our church family and we want it to continue to thrive and grow and encourage you to be a part of that the details are there in your worship guide um, and so thanks for letting us kind of take an extended moment to talk about it if i have not had a chance to meet you yet i'm alan i'm one of the pastors here one of the elders as well and we are absolutely thrilled that you chose to come and worship with us today we as a church family have been walking through the new testament this year uh, a, a chat well, not a chapter a week sorry we've been walking through five chapters a week a chapter a day and uh, we are now uh, finishing the New Testament by going to the last book in the New Testament and then after we finish Revelation we'll jump over to Matthew and we'll finish out the year in the book of Matthew but this week we started reading in the book of Revelation and if you don't know where we are in the reading plan it's actually at the bottom of the sermon notes on the worship guide and you'll see that this coming week we'll be reading Revelation chapters 6 through 10 uh, but this morning we're going to look at the very first chapter of Revelation. So I'd encourage you that if you uh, have a Bible with you to go ahead and open it and go to the back of the, the Bible to the book of Revelation. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible under a chair around you. You can use that. And then if you don't own a Bible or you need a Bible, feel free to take that home with you. That'll be our gift to you. So uh, turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. And as you do that, I want to kind of open this up a little bit. The book of Revelation, I believe, is one of the very most popular uh, books in all of scripture. In fact, one of my D group members, Jacob Justice, preached a few weeks ago. I specifically decided not to have him preach on this Sunday because he's got all kinds of charts and can talk to us about Revelation. That's a kind of a joke between us. The reality is there are lots of people that have all these charts and they have Revelation figured out, but the real deal is none of us really have Revelation figured out. But it's very popular because we want to know kind of how the story ends and we want to understand how uh, the, the book unfolds. But the reality is while it's one of the most popular books of the scriptures, it's also one of the mo more difficult to understand, to interpret correctly, and kind of wrap our brain around. And I believe one of those reasons is because it's written in a genre or a type of literature that most of us are not familiar with. Uh, it's written in apocalyptic 
uh, literature. And so um, that word's hard enough for me to say, and it might be a word that we don't fully understand. What is apocalyptic literature? Well, I, I consulted one of my commentaries, and I wanted to read to you kind of a definition or explanation about apocalypse. Apocalypse is a supernatural unveiling of what is about to take place. A divine disclosure is given, usually by angels, to some prominent person in which God promises to intervene in human history, destroy evil, and bring his kingdom. Now, the book of Revelation has all kinds of apocalyptic literature in it. There's other portions of the Old Testament, specifically Daniel and Ezekiel, and some pieces in Scripture where we see kind of apocalyptic literature, but Revelation is not exclusively apocalyptic, but almost entirely it is. And so this is an exciting book to read, but also can be kind of difficult to understand. So let's look at the first couple of verses of the book of Revelation to kind of see where we're going. And and you'll see at the outset that it's an apocalyptic uh, piece of literature because it says this in verses 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And so essentially what we have here in the book of Revelation is that it is a revelation or unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation of Jesus. It's a revelation from Jesus, and it helps us understand who he is and who God is. And that this revelation, as it says, was given uh, uh, from God to an angel, and then an angel shared it with John. So you can see already kind of all of this being apocalyptic in nature. John is the Apostle John. Uh, James and John were brothers, one of the close disciples that Jesus had. In fact, John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he also wrote Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is, um, was written by John probably in the late 90s, in the 1st century, uh, from a place uh, or an island called Patmos. Uh, John was uh, in exile. The, the Roman emperor Domitian has sent him off in exile and, and, and for his faith, and God shows him what is about to unfold. And so then John takes the opportunity to write it down so that his readers, both those in the first century as well as us, would be privy to the revelation or unfolding of who Jesus Christ is. I wanted to show you a a map on the screen uh, because it'll help us kind of understand what's going on here. This is a map of, uh, and you see the red dots, these represent the cities where the churches are that John is writing this. If you were, let's leave it on the screen, but if you were to look down at verse 11, you'll see that he lists the seven churches that this was written to. And you'll see on this map that the seven churches are in modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia, or, or perhaps sometimes called Asia Minor at the time. And each of those red dots represent the seven churches that this letter was originally written to. And this would have been a circular letter where one church would read it and pass it on to the next church, and it would kind of go from there. 
now on the map it's not really there because the island of Patmos was only about is only about 13 square miles in size so it's pretty small but if you look to the left or to the west of Ephesus you'll see uh, Samos or Samos however you say that uh, that island there and then kind of below there there's a little bitty dots that's where the island of Patmos is so John was there writing this letter to these churches in present-day Turkey and all of the words that are written in the book of Revelation are all true. All of the words that are written in the book of Revelation are, are uh, inspired. They are from God. And all of the words that are written in the book of Revelation have purpose and meaning for our lives today and not just for those seven churches. But at the same time, Many of these words that we'll see in the book of Revelation are symbolic in nature. They're figurative in, in nature. There's all kinds of uses of, of numbers and the, 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 the meaning that is behind numbers. There's all kinds of creatures that are listed here. There's all kinds of Old Testament references. There's all kinds of locations uh, that relate to political powers in that, that time period. And so all of these things have to kind of be deciphered through the original intent of the writer John. Now, we only have about four or five weeks in this series to go through the book of Revelation. So for the most part, we're going to be looking at more of the straightforward narrative type literature that's found in the book of Revelation. But I wanted to kind of paint a picture of Revelation in its entirety. One other thing before we read the specific text from today. The book of Revelation from beginning to end just as God's word from beginning to end, starting in Genesis, working all the way through Scripture, is entirely about the glory of God. Like, this whole story, not just in Revelation, but the whole Scripture is the story of God and His plan for His people and the redemption that He brings and the glory that He is well-deserving of. And so in this series, we're calling it glory. And maybe you see it on the front cover of your worship guide. We're calling it the glory of God. And we're going to see how we are to acknowledge, proclaim, and share, and extend God's glory throughout the entire earth. And that's kind of what our mission is going to be over the next month or so. I'd like for you to look at the main text for this morning, which is verses 4 through 8 in chapter 1. So Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 through 8. I started by reading verses 1 through 2, and then now uh, we're going to pick up kind of on John's um, salutation to the audience, and then he's going to begin to sing God's praises. Here we go. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. John, and this is his way of saying this is from him, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, 
and all tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Would you join me in prayer? God, this morning as we come to your word, I pray that you would help us to really see you in all your glory. Help us to acknowledge and understand what your glory is about. Help us to see that you truly are sovereign, that you are in charge, that you are in control, that you are king, that you are Lord over all, that you are the Alpha and the Omega, that you are the one who is and was and is to come, that you are worthy of all of our worship and honor and praise. And God, I pray this morning as we reflect on the truth of your word that we would walk away from here understanding your glory better and seeing our need and our call to respond to your glory in a life of worship to you as we proclaim your gospel to the nations. God, may you be glorified and honored through my words, and may they not be my words. May I get out of the way, and may we focus on your word this morning. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So, here we are. John is beginning his revelation to the seven churches, and he begins by a a form of salutations or greetings. Would you look back at at verse 4? We see that he extends to the people of, uh, of these churches, as well as to you and I, grace and peace and that grace and peace does not come from john like john is not the source of grace in life god john is not the the source of peace there are many ways that you and i can show graceful things towards one another there's different ways we can extend peace to others but true grace and true peace comes only from god Like we could get rid of of all the wars in the world and there still would not be peace in the hearts of men. The only way we have peace is from God. So here's John extending God's grace and peace to the people. And I want us to see that in these words he shares that this grace and peace actually comes from God in all his entirety. We worship one true God, and yet we worship him as the triune God, or or the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so John takes the time in these verses to say this grace and peace that comes from God comes from every person of the Godhead. I I want us to look at it a little bit closer. Look there in in, in the second part of verse 4. This grace and peace comes from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is God the Father. Uh, Perhaps you're familiar with the text in the book of Exodus where the people of of Israel uh, are in captivity in in, in Egypt. God chooses a man by the name of Moses to go down and be a part of rescuing his people out of bondage. God shows up in a, a burning bush and begins to talk to Moses and said, Moses, would you go down to Egypt and would you say to Pharaoh, let my people go? And, and Moses is like, God, God, you understand that I'm just a man. Like, I stutter. I, I'm not the best leader there is. And what makes you think that Pharaoh's going to let the people go just because I walk in the door and say, let them go? And God says, tell them that I sent you. He goes, okay, well, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. And this context of God calling himself the great I am extends into this phrase that we see, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And so this grace and peace that he extends to the people comes from the Father, the the great I am, the one who extends beyond time and space. 
the, the one who has always been and always will be. There's no beginning to God. There's no end to God. And, and so we see the Father mentioned at the front part of this greeting. And then it says at the end of verse 4, it's also from the seven spirits who were before the throne. You're like, okay, hold up. Like you say we worship one true God, and then you say we worship him in three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then now John says there's seven spirits. Like what is going on here? What we have to understand is that many times, in fact most of the times, numbers are mentioned in the book of Revelation. They have symbolic or significance based on the number. And so the number seven represents perfection or completeness or fullness. And so he's not saying there are seven spirits uh, literally around the throne. There's one spirit who is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is full, complete, and perfect. He is God himself. And so we see that this grace and peace that's extended to us not only comes from the Father, but it also comes from the Spirit. And then he finishes in verse 5, and it's also from Jesus Christ. So of the three persons of the Trinity, Jesus Christ is spelled out specifically clearly. The other two are there, but we kind of have to unpack the language that John chooses to use. But in this scenario, it says that it's also this grace and peace is from Jesus Christ. He then uses three descriptive phrases about who Jesus is. And what we have to understand with the number three is oftentimes when three things are used, especially in the book of Revelation, the number three points to God. And the way that I remember it is there are three persons in the Trinity, and so the number three represents God. And so he, I think, specifically chose to list three things about Jesus to point to Jesus' divinity or the fact that Jesus is God. And here's what he says at the end of verse 5, or actually um, the, the middle of verse 5, that Jesus is the faithful witness. That's one. He says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, that's two. And he says that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth, that's three. How is Jesus the faithful witness? In lots of ways. Jesus is true, he is God, everything he says is true. I think that when John says the faithful witness right here, he's referencing the fact that this revelation is about Jesus and from Jesus, and that Jesus can vouch for its truth and validity, and so he's a faithful witness to what John is about to record for us to read. And then he says, not only is he the faithful witness, it says that he's the firstborn of the dead. What's that all about? Well, what did Jesus do? He rose from the dead, right? Jesus was resurrected from the dead. You may be going, well, wait a minute. It says he's the firstborn of the dead. Well, what about Lazarus? I mean, didn't Jesus heal Lazarus and raise him from the dead? Well, yes, he did, but he more resuscitated him. I mean, what happened after Lazarus was raised from the dead? He would die again, right? A natural death. And, and Jesus did not just simply get resuscitated. He was truly resurrected. And it's because of his resurrection, Paul tells us in various places in his writings, it's because of his resurrection that we have hope that resurrection can come for us if we place our faith and our trust in Jesus. So he's the firstborn from the dead. And then it says that he is the ruler of kings on earth. Now, Here's the deal. 
The book of Revelation is written in a time period that the, 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 the Roman world ruled everything. The Caesar was in charge. In fact, the Caesar was referred to as Lord, and Christians did not say that because there's only one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. They lived in a world at this point where it was illegal or definitely frowned upon to be a Christian. There was persecution that was beginning to come up. Uh, remember John himself is on an island of exile because of his faith in Jesus and so the Christians in the flesh would be naturally worried about the leadership of where they're going as a nation or actually they weren't really a part of the nation they were just part of the empire and not happy about the direction that was going it seemed like the king had full control here John reminds them that there's no king, there's no president, there's no governor, there's no mayor, there's no ruler of any sort that is above and beyond Jesus Christ. That Jesus himself is king of kings. And I think he's writing it this way to remind his audience that regardless of what may come their way, that they can trust in Jesus because he is sovereign and he is Lord. So here's this greeting. It comes with grace and peace from all three persons of the Trinity. Then after he extends his greeting, we get into the end of verse 5 and verse 6, which is a doxology to and about Jesus. Perhaps you've heard the word doxology. Uh, it's a song that churches oftentimes sing. In fact, when I grew up, we at our church sang the doxology usually every other week as a church family. And, and doxology simply means that it's a short, uh, uh, typically sung or, or, or a song or a hymn of praise to Jesus Christ. And so here is a doxology based on who Jesus is that John shares with us. Pick up in the middle of verse 5 and verse 6. To him, this is talking about Jesus, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That's how we know it's about Jesus. Jesus died for us and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want us to take a moment to reflect on the things that we should worship Jesus about because of his redemptive work in our lives. And so there on the back of your sermon notes, you'll see them. The first one I want us to see is that he loves us. He loves us. That's how the thing begins. To him who loves us. This is the starting point of all that God and Jesus Christ have done for us. I want you to notice that he writes it in the present the, the verb is he loves us. It doesn't say he has loved us. It doesn't say he did love us. He will love us. He says he loves us. That means whenever you read it, it is true. His love for us is constant and ongoing. It does not stop. Now, I want to kind of walk through a few verses. I believe they'll be on the screen for you to look at kind of quickly about God's love for us. It'll be from other places besides just Revelation. Let's look at some of these together. Perhaps you're familiar with John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So, the fact that Jesus loves us begins in the fact that the Father sent him to us. The love of Christ 
begins in the Father's love for us. Then, look at this verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. John wrote this, he said, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world so that we might live through him. That word at the beginning, it, it's made manifest. In other words, it's made visible to us. So God's love for us was made visible by the sending of his son. We're about to celebrate Christmas, and we shouldn't just be focused on what Christmas presents can we buy. We should be getting ready for the coming of the king who came about 2,000 years ago and is coming again someday in the near future. We should celebrate the fact that Christ came into the world. What does scripture tell us? It says that God, he is Emmanuel, God with us. So John says in 1 John 4, 9, that God's love for us is made manifest or visible to us by his sending of his son. A little bit longer text, look with me at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. It's a prayer that Paul prays, and here's what he says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and here comes love, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, in Christ's love for you, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I want us to look at this for just a second specifically looking down in um, verse 19, uh, 18, sorry, verse 18. We see in this text that Paul prays for us to be grounded in Christ's love for us and in verse 18 we see that Christ's love for us is kind of a 4D kind of love. Like we know a 2D dimension is just kind of drawing some three dimension, we're able to hold on to it. God's love for us, Christ's love for us is bigger than just something we could try to describe and Paul chooses to use four dimensions to describe God's, Christ's love for us. It's wide, it's long, it's high, it's deep. In fact, he says in these verses that because of Christ's immense love for us, it's nearly impossible, in fact it is impossible to fully grasp and understand his love for us without his help in showing us that kind of love. The reason I say all this is because if we're not careful we can say he loves us and just kind of drop it at that. Because we don't really understand what love really is. I, I know for some of you, you're excited because it's Christmas time. That means it's about time to start watching your Hallmark movies and you'll see all these romantic movies about love. And we, if we're not careful, begin to put love in, 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 in a box that Hollywood tells us is. Or we put it in a box that kind of uh, what, how we would describe it. But Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 3 that Christ's love for us is incredibly rich. Some things that I wrote down is that, that Christ's love for us is real. Christ's love for us is deep. It's genuine. It's perfect. It's unending. It's unconditional. And we could go on and on from there. But one other aspect of Christ's love for us that we must not leave out is that it is sacrificial. Look at this verse on the screen, Romans 5.8. Paul says this, but... God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
His love is a sacrificial love. I want to read one more text from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want us to look at verse 7. The verses I read before that talks about how great God's love for us is. And then it says, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. Christ's love for us is so great that it's going to take us eternity to begin to measure and understand and celebrate his love for us. So, why should we sing a doxology to Jesus? First of all, because he loves us. Secondly, on your handout, it says this, he has set us free from our sins. That, that's found in Revelation chapter 1 at the end of verse 5. It says, he's loved us, but also he has freed us from our sins by his blood. You see, the kind of love that Jesus has for us is a costly love. He didn't just say it with empty words. He didn't just demonstrate it by doing a few good things for us and to us. He didn't just come to serve us. He didn't just come to give us good teachings that if we follow them, they would be good morals to live our lives by. Rather, Jesus came so that he would spill his blood. Like, his life and his ministry on our behalf and his love for us was so costly that he poured his blood out for us. And again, if we're not careful, we'll cruise right past that truth and say, I know that, I know that. Like, I know he died for me. But when is the last time we really sat and thought on how incredible his love is for us? Along those lines, I want us to look at another verse from 1 John. It's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And John continues to tell us what the love of God is for us, what the love of Christ is for us. 1 John 4, 10 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Depending on your translation, you have a different word there perhaps. What is propitiation? It's a big theological word, but let me unpack a little bit what propitiation is. Propitiation is the idea that God is just. He demands that the right thing be done. God is righteous. He demands that any rebellion against him is punished and addressed. That, that God, being just, demands punishment for sin, and Scripture tells us that punishment for sin is death. Yes, God is a God of love. At the same time, and not in conflict with each other, not only is God love, God is also a God of wrath. You see, God will pour out his wrath, his judgment, his righteousness. He will judge sin. God's wrath is his just judgment for our sin. 
So, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, when it says that Jesus is our propitiation for our sins, he's saying that Jesus died for our sins, and by dying for our sins, he satisfied the justice that God requires. God said that when sin is committed, that death is required. So God followed up on his end of the conversation by sending his own son to die in our place. The way that Jesus is our propitiation, the way that Jesus satisfies the justice and wrath of God is that he was given by his father and therefore God provided the propitiation or the appeasement for his wrath through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I know that's kind of a mouthful, so let's stop and think for just a second. The Bible is very clear from the very beginning, from the Old Testament, from when Adam and Eve show up and they're given a command to not eat from a certain tree. And what do they do? They do the very thing God tells them not to do. And all throughout Scripture and all throughout history and all throughout our lives, we know that time and time again we rebel against God. We know that time and time again we sin against God. And and all throughout Scripture, we see that when sin comes, it has to be punished by God and that the punishment or the wages is death. In fact, Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. So, God made us to be in fellowship and relationship with him. But because of sin in our lives, we disconnect ourselves from God. We put up a barrier because God can have nothing to do with sin. And when sin enters the equation, his wrath has to be poured out. His judgment has to come. And it comes in the form of death, not just physical death, but spiritual death in all eternity separated from a good, holy, loving God. That's not very good news at all. But the good news is, is John tells us that Jesus was sent as our propitiation, that he came to die in our place. In the Old Testament, what did they do when sin came up? They did what God's word said. They they took a a, a sacrifice, typically a a, a lamb or, or or a bull, and they would sacrifice it according to the prescriptions that God details in the Old Testament. And that would allow their sin to be transferred, if you will, over to this sacrifice on their behalf so that their sins might be forgiven. Yet they had to do it over and over and over and over and over again. But it was simply to point to the one who would come And he, being the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, that he would die once and for all, that our sins might be forgiven. So, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, when it says that he has freed us from his our sins by his blood, it's in reference to the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that Jesus died. There's only one way to be made right with God. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can earn. You can't be good enough. You can't do the right things. You can't follow step A, B, C, and D to to please God. You can't do anything to be approved by God other than to receive the free gift that's offered to you through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for your sins. I want us to look down in verse 7. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says this. This is in reference to the urgency to say yes to him. It's talking about Jesus. 
It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, it says, All eyes, every eye will see him, not just those who trust in him and believe in him, but look at the next words, even those who pierced him, even those who crucified him, even those of us that have sinned against him, we will see him when he comes again. And then there's almost a confusing phrase at the end of the verse. It says, and all tribes of the earth, all peoples, all languages, all nations, all tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. You're like, hold up. I thought Jesus coming back was a good thing. Like, when he comes back, why are the nations not shouting hip, 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 hooray? Why are they not excited? The reason is because the people that John is referring to are people who have not trusted in Jesus for salvation. And when Jesus comes back, there will be a sense that it's too late. I didn't trust in Jesus. Like the time has passed. There's an urgency. Have you trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? If you haven't, don't put it off. Say yes to him today. Jesus is the way, the single way for salvation. I want us to look real quickly. A couple of aspects of how Jesus frees us from sin. First of all, he frees us from the penalty of sin. I said that he's our propitiation. He dies in our place. He's our atoning sacrifice. He dies for our sins. And through his death, through our acceptance of his death, through the, the free gift of God's grace, it comes through faith in Jesus and him alone, we can experience freedom from the penalty of sin. So that's the most important aspect of this, but right in hand in hand with that, not only does Jesus free us from our sins, our penalty of sins whenever we trust in him, secondly, Jesus frees us from slavery to sin. So when it says that Jesus sets us free from sin, it's not only the penalty of sin, but also slavery to sin. I want us to look real quickly <clears throat> at what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. In, in Romans chapter 6, Paul walks through and says, should we continue to sin against God? And he says, definitely not. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may, be, may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? He says that we're to die to sin. He says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are to not be enslaved to sin. Verse 5, but for if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So not only are we set free from our sin by Jesus in the sense that our sin's penalty is removed through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our faith in that, also he frees us from sin's reign in our lives. Are you living in a habitual pattern of sin? Does your life reflect the fruit of the Holy Spirit or does your life reflect fruit of the flesh if your life reflects the fruit of the flesh that either means you're a believer in Jesus that needs to repent and begin to ask Christ to free you from your 
pattern of sin or perhaps you never really trusted in Jesus in the first place. And there's a couple of ways that God empowers us to be freed from the power of sin. First and foremost, through his strength, his power, the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. But also God chooses to use each other, us, other followers of Jesus, to help us escape the claims of sin on our life. That's why here at our church we value doing life together. As important as Sunday mornings are, we know that this is not the end of ministry that takes place as a church body. Like, God wants us and calls us to be in community in smaller groups. And so that's why we have hope groups in our church. Perhaps you're a part of a hope group. Perhaps you've heard us talk about it. Maybe you haven't yet checked one out. But a hope group is simply a smaller group of people that meet in the homes of church members throughout the course of the week. They meet once a week to do life together, to spend time together, to have community, to have fellowship, to pray with and encourage one another, to read God's Word, to challenge each other, to put into practice what God's Word teaches. And so whenever we struggle with sin in our life, if we can share that with our hope group, and our hope group can give us uh, prayer, encouragement, point us back to the truth of the gospel. And so one way that God empowers us to move beyond the grip that sin has in our life is to be in community with other believers. Let me just say that if you are not in a hope group right now, you are missing out. I don't know whether our hope group times work for your schedule or not, but if they work for your schedule and you're not in one, you really need to sign up for one today. We have a hope group that meets on Sunday. We have a hope group that meets on Mondays. We have one that meets on Tuesdays, and we have several that meet on Wednesdays. The, they're all on our website. You can see them there. Also, we have a registration table right outside in the foyer that you can stop by today to talk to them. But I encourage you that if you're not in a hope group, that today your action of, uh, your step of action would be to sign up to be in a hope group. Because a hope group is one wonderful way that God empowers us to not cave into the, 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 the power in, uh, of sin in our lives. So, I encourage you to consider that. I want us to think for just a minute how Christ's love for us has set us free from sin and how those are actually connected. His love for us and his setting us free from sin are completely connected. You see, Jesus loves us, so he offers us freedom from sin. And then I'm going to flip that statement. He loves us, so he offers freedom from sin. Also, he has brought us freedom from sin, so he loves us. And what I mean by that is there's nothing in ourselves that causes God to love us and accept us. Rather, he loves us and accepts us because of the work of Christ within us. And so why is it that God loves us? He loves us because of who Christ has made us to be whenever we trust in him for salvation. You see, everything is based on what Christ has done for us. It's all about him. I want us to look at kind of the last point of, of what the scripture says here, and we're going to see the, the purpose for which God has set us free. Look down in verse 6. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. It says, and he's made us a kingdom, priests 
to his God and Father. So the reason we've been set free is to be a kingdom of priests. It's there in your notes. This kingdom of God, this idea of kingdom of God is not about a territory. It's not about a, a drawing of a map on a piece of paper. Rather, the kingdom of God is all about where God reigns and rules. He reigns and rules everywhere, yes, but not all people acknowledge that uh, authority of Christ. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, that have been set free from sin, we are in his kingdom, and by being in his kingdom, Christ reigns and rules within us, and we are extending his kingdom to those around us. We're part of his kingdom where he can express his sovereignty and his power. So once we experience Christ's forgiveness, he becomes our king. He becomes our Lord. My question for you is this. As you look at your life, is your life reflecting the fact that he is king over everything? I'm not saying, how would you answer the question if I came up to you, is Jesus your king? And you would just simply give me a yes or no. I'm asking you to evaluate your life. I'm asking myself to do the same thing. Does my life show that he is king over my life? As I think about how I use the internet, as I think about how I spend my finances, as I think about my plans and ambitions for my kids, as I think about my conversations, my thought life, all of these things, am I reflecting the fact that I'm in the kingdom. Do these things bring glory to God? So he says we're a kingdom of priests. What's, what's a priest? Like you're going, I didn't know I was a pastor. I didn't know I was a priest. I didn't know I had to wear a collar like a priest. No, a priest in this scenario, what is a priest? A priest, in short, is a person who serves and worships God while pointing others to God. So I encourage you to remember that you are not set free from your sin just so that you can sit and wait on Jesus to come back. Rather, you are set free from your sin so that you and I can bring glory to God and that we bring glory to God by being a part of the kingdom of priests. And as such, we are seeking to serve and to worship him and that we're seeking to point others to him as well. Devote your life to Jesus and by doing that, you're being an extension, uh, sorry, by, by um, devoting your life to him is showing that he is king of your life. So all too often we come together on Sunday mornings and we think that this is the time of the week that we come to worship God. The reality is all of our life should be a life of worship to him. It's just Sunday morning is a public expression with our church family. So this morning we've looked at three aspects of a praise to Jesus. That he loves us, that he's set us free from our sins. <clears throat> Excuse me. That he loves us, that he's set us free from our sins, and that he's made us a kingdom of priests. But I want to kind of finish it out this morning by looking at that last point on your sheet, and that is that we, as a result of this, are to respond by making much of his glory and power. Look down at the ending of verse 6. It says, based on these things that Jesus has done for us, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, it's only proper that our response 
to God's love for us, his setting us free from our sins, him making us a kingdom of priests, it's only proper that we would respond with making much of him. Because it's not about me. It's not what I've done. It's not what I've earned. It's not look at me. Look what I've accomplished. It's about who God is. See, Jesus Christ is to be praised. Jesus Christ is to be acknowledged. Like, we should acknowledge with our words and with our life, with our attitude, with our actions, that he is sovereign and that we are not. That it's his glory. It's his power. It's his strength. It's his dominion. In other words, we point towards him. And even as I wrote down this concept that we are to respond by bringing him glory and honor and praise, it dawned on me that that phrase, the way I wrote it, is actually not complete. Like we should not only bring him glory and honor and make much of that because of what he's done for us, we should make much of his glory and honor and power and his strength just simply because of who he is is in other words he's to be praised for who he is and not just what we what he does for us i think whenever we think about our relationship with christ there are typically three ways that we could respond to him not not necessarily good but there are three ways that we could respond to him we could respond by ignoring him and kind of not even including him in 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 our life we could we could ignore him Another way that we could respond to him is to simply thank him for what he has done for us. But the third thing is that we can just worship him for who he is. So whenever I think that Jesus is worthy of our glory and and our honor and our praise, it's not because of what he's done for me. Rather, it's because of who he is. You see, if we're not careful, even in our worship of God, we can make it self-centered. I'm going to worship him because he did X, Y, and Z. No, I worship him because he is a holy, perfect, good, loving God. And I worship him for that. So I kind of want to ask us to think, when's the last time that you just basked in God's glory? When's the last time that you just worshiped him for who he is don't get me wrong we should be thankful for what he's done for us but we should worship him for he is God look at verse 8 this section of revelation is concluded by the very words of God himself it says I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and, is, and who is to come, the Almighty. Pretty powerful words right here. Alpha and Omega, you know what that is, right? It's Greek letters. Alpha is the A of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the Z of the Greek alphabet. So if we were using English terms, he would have said, I am the A and I am the Z. I am the first and I am the last. I am everything in between. He says, I, I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And so this idea that he is means that he reigns and rules over 
everything. He's all that ultimately matters. He is with us. Jesus is still Emmanuel. He is still God with us. So I don't know what you're facing right now in the present, but I want you to know that you should and you can worship God because he is with you. And then whenever we look at this phrase, he was, that means he's always been the sovereign Lord of history. Whenever you think about what God has done in the past for his people, whether it's for you or whether it's for people in scripture, whenever you think about what God has done in the past for his people, that means he's just as faithful today and will do the same sort of things as he did back then. Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And then he is to come. Yes, Christ's kingdom is on this earth now, but it's marred in the sense that sin is present. But one day is coming when Jesus will come back to set up shop for good, and we will see him in all of his glory. What an exciting day that is, especially as you consider how the world is breaking down in all of the sin and chaos around us. The day is coming that he's coming to reign and rule in a new and decisive way, and really not in a new way, it's just new to our eyeballs, because we can't see it completely right now because of sin that's in the way. So I want us to celebrate the fact that we can worship the God who is above all things that we face, and he is truly the Almighty. This morning, I want to ask you to consider this. Would you trust in Jesus for salvation? He says the day is coming when Jesus will come back, and there will be people on this earth that see him coming, and they will be weeping and wailing and mourning because they did not say yes to him in time. Would you say yes to Jesus today? Would you trust in him for salvation in him alone? Would you say yes to living out the fact that you can be set free from not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin? Would you jump into a hope group and do life together with other people that are part of your church family? Would you seek to live a life that would bring glory and honor to God with all that you do? Let's go out from this place and live this truth that Jesus Christ is worthy of all of our worship and our praise. Would you join me in prayer?